Hey, everybody. We're going to do something a little different today. Um, but I want to start by reading a passage of Scripture that's been really formative in my life. It's in the book of Philippians, chapter 3. If you're looking at a pew Bible, it's page 1829. I'm not really going to do any exposition today. I'm going to come back to this and refer to a part of it. But um, I think that every worship service should have the public reading of Scripture in it. So I'm going to read this Scripture. So this is Philippians chapter 3, verses 7, and I'm going to read through verse 16. And hopefully this will kind of frame what we're going to do today. The Apostle Paul writes, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If, if you're a visitor this morning, usually I'll, I'll take a passage like that and we'll work through it and we'll just, I'll try to re-speak into our present cultural context what scripture is teaching. Um, but this morning, um, I want to circle back around to what our vision is, who we are as a church, where we've been over the last year, where we're going to be going in the next eight months or so. And so I'm going to be doing sort of this like vision, church sort of sermony thing. And this is what I'm worst at. So just hang in there. And um, they, don't, they don't teach you how to do this at seminary, but it's, it can be pretty important. So um, those of you who've been here for a while know that I've been here for a little over a year. I came in June of last year. And... Um, so far in the last year, you know, it kind of feels like things are going pretty well. Um, it, the, the, the Sunday I arrived in June last year, um, there were about 325 people here, and last Sunday there were about 450. And so that's, you know, about 125 more people, and that's, you know, 30% growth, and most organizations would be pretty happy with that. Um, in terms of our viability as an organization financially, I mean, you've got to keep the doors open and do certain things. And um, 
there was a point last year where we were $38,000 behind our budget. We were figuring out how to, how, to try, how to try and stay in the black. And we ended the last fiscal year $10,000 or more um, ahead of budget, not just ahead of what we spent, which is pretty cool. And so far this year, we're about in the same place. So that's pretty sweet. Um, most of you also know that we did a survey for the whole congregation to not just figure out just what we could count, how people were feeling, but we wanted to really know what you thought. And <clears throat> the first cool thing about the survey was 225 people actually did it. About a third of the whole— I mean, if you figure there's 600 people maybe total that come here through in a month, for 225 people to take it, that just in and of itself is pretty dang good. But when you look at—that's um, how the difference of how long people have been here. I wanted to show you that—where's the laser on this bad boy? This block right here is all people who have been here less than three years. So that's pretty cool. Like a third of our church family has been here less than three years, which is kind of annoying, I think, for people who've been here a while because they didn't go through any of the, of the junk, right? <laughs> so they don't know, which I'm in that group, remember. All I've heard is stories. So that's, that's pretty cool. But um, if you look at these, so the, the top two colors are approval. Like this is, I really like what's going on. And this is, I pretty much like it, and then I, I kind of don't. Below, and then I really, really dislike what's going on. And as you go through these slides, this is me preaching. This is um, Sunday morning worship experience. This is uh, overall senior pastor leadership. That's me. And, and elder leadership, and then children's ministry. One of the first thing that jumps out is, is that the approval ratings are almost all over 75%, and most of them are between 85 and 90%. Right? Now, President Bush or Obama would have loved to have been able to do that. I mean, any organization that the people either serve in it or customers of it, if they could know that there was an 85 to 95 percent approval rating for most things, they would be thrilled. Okay? So there is something emotionally wrong with me um, in relationship to that because I, I just keep thinking of, okay, where we, okay so what, what now? What now? That's my personality. Um, but I think that we should—I I think that it's good to say, okay, this is—that's encouraging. That's encouraging. But here's, here's the thing that I think is very important for us to think about, and that is that—oops, sorry, there was another slide there—is that there is this very normal progression from any level of success or momentum to go from success to a sense of pride and arrival to a sense of complacency, we've got this figured out, which inevitably leads to failure, okay? Success always naturally breeds failure. Any level of it, any amount of it, anything that's encouraging can lead to discouraging. And in, in any group of people who are, who are trying to accomplish something, when success is the focus, failure is inevitably going to be the result. Um, because a focus on success is fundamentally a focus on a, a, foc a function of pride, Focus on mission is a function of passion. And so we, ha we, have to we have to come here and we have to go, okay, that's all great. That's all great. And we can be encouraged by that. But we need to say, okay, well, wait a second. Um, the fact that we've got a little bit of success, a little bit of momentum, that doesn't necessarily mean we're grasping the gospel any deeper or that we're becoming the kind of church Madison needs, does it? And so we've got to come back and ask the same questions we should be asking ourselves all the time again. You know, what are we here to do? What problem have we all gathered here to solve? Or what would you and I together give anything to change? 
about the lives we live or the city we live in or the world we live in? Or what is it that really does break our hearts because we know it breaks God's heart? Or you can ask it this way. What is the thing that you are really on a deep level aching to become? Because we're not going to find that in any survey. We're not going to find that in any graph. We're not going to find that anywhere. But if we don't know that in our bones, we will not be mission-focused people. We'll be success-focused people. So, as encouraged as I am, and as much fun as I'm having being one of your elders, and being able to, like, be God's spoiled kid who gets to work at church all day, okay? As much as I like that, um, I do not want us to be a people whose memories exceed our dreams. And so I want to tell you, here are my, here's, what I, here's how I answer those questions, okay? I am aching to become a real, no kidding Christian, okay? Um, and I'm not saying I'm not one, but that, one of the things I love about Philippians chapter 3 is you read that and you ask, what part of this does Paul talk about in terms of it's already there, right? The righteousness that comes from God, which is by faith, it's already there. You get it straight away. And then, and then, he, and then he says, not that I've already gotten there. Not that I've already done it. Not that it's already happened. I'm looking forward. I'm straining ahead. I'm pushing forward to take hold of that for which Christ has taken hold of me. And the last line he says, let, you guys, everybody who's mature should think this way about it. Let's you and I live up to what we already have. Let's do it. Let's just, let's just live up to what, we've all, what we already have. And that's what I mean when I say um, I want to be a real Christian. I'm not saying I don't think I'm one. I'm not saying I don't think you're one. You become a Christian by faith. God gives you the righteousness of Christ. That's all there is to it. That's all there is to it. But there's something for which Christ Jesus took hold of you right? There, there is something that you have been declared that you and I are meant to become. And I don't think it happens very much. I don't think it happens very much. I think that there are increments, and I think that some of the lower increments we buy into, but I don't think there's a lot of people fully trying to take hold of that for which Jesus took hold of us. And I want that. I just, I just do. I just want that. I want that for me. I want that for you. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm ahead of myself there. The second thing is, um, here, here's one of the problems that I have come here to change. That Christ is not known. Does that bother you? That, that not just that Christ is not known in many places in the world, but that Christ is not known by, by probably a couple hundred thousand people in our county. He's just not known. And here's, here's the bigger problem. 
Because when we ask ourselves, why is it that Christ is not known and is slandered and even hated among those that he died for? The answer to that in this county is probably not that Christ is unheard of, is it? That's not the problem. The problem is not in this county that Christ is unheard of. The, the problem in this county is, is that the message of Christ has been so misheard and so mislived and so that the people in our culture find the message of the cross and of the gospel unbelievable. It's not that it's unheard of. It's that when it comes into their psychological, emotional, and, and past experience matrix, it doesn't ring true. It doesn't seem believable. There's nothing that's happened to them that has made them feel like it's believable. And some of that may be ideas. Some of that may be their experiences. But when God desired to make the message of the cross believable, he sent somebody to come and make it believable. That is, Jesus. And then Jesus went ahead and gave that part of the job to this group of people who was going to be called the church, right? Or the disciples, or the people who followed the way, or the, whatever you want to call it. Jesus took care of all of one side of the job. That is, the atoning work, right? We can't do anything about that. We can't add to that, can we? That's totally done. Only he can accomplish that. But there's the other part, the part where he came and made it believable for a hundred more generations. Whose job is that? It's ours. We have the Bible. We have the Spirit. We have the gospel. We have a lot of divinely given help. But the job got handed off to the church. Not just to make the, the gospel of the message of Jesus heard of, but in many contexts, to make it believable. And the, the problem I've come to solve, the thing that I am aching about, the reason why I did this instead of something else with my career, is, is because that just kills me. So last year, well, at the beginning part of this year, I said, I think as we try to move into becoming the kind of church we want to be, a place where the gospel is believed and where it's made believable. Um, we needed to have two focuses. We needed to kill some idols negatively, and we needed to believe and grasp the gospel deeper positively. And the way I said, I felt like we should play that out, and the elders and I, we talked about this, was um, in the areas of financial freedom and grasping the gospel more deeply. And I want to do these kind of in reverse order. I want to tell you where we are and where we're going on both of them. Is that okay? Okay, a couple of nods there. That's great. Um, see, if, you are an, if you're a newcomer here, you might hear this whole idea of financial freedom. You're like, okay, I so knew this was coming. I so knew this was coming. Just somehow he randomly includes money in this whole thing with the gospel. And this is exactly the church I swore I'd never go to. Um, here's, here's the problem with that. The one is, is that, I, is that we, don't, we don't need your money. I mean, obviously, you give to God, and that's all there is to it. But we're making budget. We're fine. We're not doing a building campaign. I don't need your money. That's not the point. The reason why the elders and I felt really convicted about this was not to say, what can the people of the congregation do for the organization? The question was, what can we as a gathered group of people do for the people of this church and this community so that they won't— have their necks under the foot of debt and financial stupidity the rest of their lives. That's what this is about. That's what it's about. 
And um, this, and the second issue is, is that this, the scripture is very clear that the biggest natural competitor to the gospel for our obedience is money. There's no question about that in scripture. The love of money or our passion for what the Greeks called mammon and the Latins called lucre, the things of this world that we use to empower ourselves to have security and pleasure and the things we want in our personal self-salvation model, that worldliness, it's called in the Christian tradition, is the greatest natural competitor for our love and obedience. It calls to us. And that's why when Jesus had to contrast what it meant to give ourselves to God and give ourselves to everything else, he put in money. Because it is the greatest natural competitor. Like it says in Luke 16, 13. And as I reflected through this, and I talked with the staff, and I talked with the elders, um, it, it, became, it became even more clear. Because when you look at all the statistics on individual Americans— they're really bad. We're totally non-capitalized. We're in way more debt than we know how. We don't manage our money well. We're, we're, we're leveraged towards our pleasures rather than our future. We're not financially free. We're terrified. And macroeconomically, there's no end in sight. I mean, all the actual evidence points to things getting worse rather than better. And the world around us is getting more and more terrified about what's going to happen money-wise. And so I, I think that over the course of the last eight months, this has just become more and more and more and more important and relevant and helpful. What we've done is—sorry, I have to say one more thing about that. So individually and then nationally, we've got these problems. But here, here's, here's the reality— if you, if you and I are not financially free, if, we're, if we can't get out of being terrified about money, it will always affect our spiritual and moral decisions. Always. I can't tell you how many people tell me they made this or that decision, and really their reason for just blowing off Jesus was because they couldn't afford not to. No kidding. They, some people will come right out and say it. Some people will like put some kind of veneer over it. But people make these moral decisions and these spiritual decisions and huge decisions and their entire emotional well-being is thrown out of order because of where they are financially. And if you don't, if we don't get financial freedom, the chances that we are going to consistently make spiritual and moral gut checks in our life is pretty dang low. It's pretty dang low. So we did two things. One of them was going to, was called, we called the debt tracker. And that was, we were all going to—remember this? Yeah. We were all going to tally in the entire personal debt of the church, and we were just going to quarterly come back and just see how much we could pay off together. That was a total bust. Just, to, just a total bust. The data was so unscientific that I just didn't—it was just terrible. So we just sort of scrapped that, and that's why you haven't heard anything about it. But the other thing that we did was— <laughs> The other thing that we did was we did this course called Financial Peace University, right? We've run it twice. Um, <clears throat> it's like a 14-week class. Um, there's an investment to get in it. It's, it's, it's a serious commitment. There's homework every week. And um, 
but we had 100 people sign up for the, cl- for, for the first class. We had 40-something people actually finish it, right? Um, and so, and we've, run, we've run two classes. Almost 100 people have gone through the course. In the first course that I was in with Alexi and some of you, um, the total debt payoff tally, how much just that group of people paid off in personal debt over 14 weeks was north of $200,000, of personal debt. And that doesn't include capitalization. So for example, Lexi and I went into class, we didn't have any personal debt. But we were saving towards that three to six month buffer of an emergency fund. And so we saved, but that doesn't go into that tally. The financial turnaround that happened among those 40 people and the effect that had on the marriages and the families and the training of children early on was very powerful. We had another class after that. I haven't got all the data back from it yet, but it seems like very similar things happening there. I'm extremely encouraged. And one of the cool things about the second class was there were a lot of non-high point people in it. We did more outreach into the community, and people who don't go to this church or don't go to any church came to that class so that they could get financially free because they're terrified financially. And so here's the future action. We're going to do it again. We're going to do it again. We're not going to do this fall. We're going to do it in January, and we'll do it after that. But we're going to do it again. I'm going to push it hard. I'm going to tell you if you haven't taken it that you should take it. I'm going to encourage you to invite friends. I'm going to, we're going to hand out things so that you can create some buzz. Because listen, this will really transform your lives and other people's lives. It will make you feel morally and spiritually free in ways you've never thought possible. And it, will, it may help save the marriages or livelihoods of people that you live next to, your neighbors and friends. And it has the potential to be an incredible outreach because one of the greatest idols, and now therefore one of the greatest fears that may exist in our city and in our culture for who knows how long, is the terror we're feeling about what's going to happen to us financially. Now, here's, here's the thing that probably is obvious to you that have any spiritual sense in your bones, is that that is so not enough, right? If we um, all become very financially shrewd and sensible and austere people, um, all that means is, is that love of money will come back three or four years from now. We start to save in our retirements, and we don't spend money foolishly, and we get financial freedom. What does that mean? We actually accumulate wealth, but what's that going to create? the whole other side of financial temptation for it to become an idol. So if we don't increasingly grasp the gospel to permanently displace the idol of money, it'll end up worse than ever. We'll be the church that is financially fine per capita and who just thinks everybody who isn't probably was just dumb or undisciplined, and we'll be, just have our little thing here, and it'll be worse than ever, right? And what we did to create freedom from an idol will end up enslaving us all over again, and much worse, because if you're in desperation financially, you might turn to God. But if you're in pride and self-sufficiency in your finances, you're probably not gonna— So the end would be worse than the beginning. So therefore, the second piece of the gospel and grasping it more deeply and knowing it more fully and working out into more places and areas and depths of our life is where everything has to flow out of. 
right? Okay, I'm behind. Okay, so the second thing we need to do is we need a better grasp and a deeper grasp of the gospel. The only way, that, and I took this from John Piper, who I think took it from C.S. Lewis, who took it from whoever wrote Expulsive Powers of a New Affection. Um, the only way, really, to overcome any sin long-term is to not create disciplines to stop doing the sin, but it's to take a greater affection or passion or love and displace this one with the better one. Okay? Does that make sense? It's called—I um, forget the name of the pastor. But there's a sermon called The Expulsive Power of a Greater Affection or a New Affection. I can't remember the title. But the idea is, is that, um, a, you know, some little kid likes to play outside, right? And that's cool until he gets hormones and wants a car and a girlfriend, right? And so he stops making mud pies and takes a shower. Why do little boys learn to take showers, right? Because they want girls to pay attention to them. So they give up the great passion of constant body odor and playing outside for cleanliness. Why? Because of the greater expulsive passion of wanting a car and a girlfriend, right? And then later on, you know, they, 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 they want to party. And so they stop being, you know, obedient, whatever. And, they, and then they go, well, wait a second. If I just party all the time, then how am I ever going to make any money? Right? I'm not going to be successful on Wall Street unless I give up this frivolity. So the frivolity is given up for a greater passion, that is money. But then they realize that if I don't climb the networking ladder politically, I'm never going to have any real power. And so the passion for money can be superseded by the will for power. Now there's nothing that had to do with God about any of that. It's just a fundamental truth about human psychology that lesser passions can be permanently displaced by greater passions. And so if we really want to get free permanently of our idols, of our sin, and of our self-salvation projects. The only way that's really going to happen long-term is if our lesser worldly, earthly passions really get displaced by some greater passion. And, and, the, and the greatest passion would be a passion for the maximally honorable, beautiful, great, truthful being and his message to us. And so the only way to really become, to become what we were taken hold of for, to grasp what God grasped us for, to live up to what we've already attained, is if the gospel works into all these areas where idolatry, sin, and self-salvation still live. And if that happens— then whatever happens in terms of financial freedom or anything else will come together into something pretty sweet. Um, I'm going to show you a video of this working out in one family. And then I want to make—I want to try to bring this around and kind of show you—because I want you to have a very firm mental picture of the sort of end that we're, that we're looking for here. Okay, so, so watch this, and then I'll come back, and we'll conclude. In uh, 2005, uh, we decided we wanted to round out our family with another little girl from China. Summer 2005 turned to winter. Four and a half years later, we're still waiting for a little girl from China. And um, 
we started to get the sense maybe God is leading us in a different direction. I've seen Bodhi's profile online. I thought, huh. <laughs> and, and then I showed Dan. I said, what do you, what do you think? We looked at Bodhi's profile and it was not quite immediate, but it was pretty close. I felt that this is the child, you know, our son. So God intended for him to be in our family. We're home one week and Sid says, you know, Mom, I really love Bodhi, but I still want a baby sister from China. And I was like, oh, really? I said, you know what? Mommy's done. I'm good. We've got four. And she's like, please. Yep. <laughs> and I said, you know what? You're going to have to talk to God on this one because Mommy's good. I'm done. That was kind of her first <laughs> mistake because once your child teams up with God, then it's all over. For Sudda, you know, a week later, say that she wanted a baby sister still, um, I just wasn't really open and receptive to that at that point <laughs> a week later. But as the weeks passed and we moved into September, there were so many events that came along that it became really quite clear. I think God was laying the groundwork on my heart to be open to doing this adoption. It was probably four months later that I think I finally cried uncle. You know, I'm in the kitchen with God and I find myself having a dialogue with the Lord saying, all right, but you know what, Lord? I'm not a good enough wife. I'm just not a good enough mother. I'm not enough. And um, him almost audibly saying, but I am enough. And that's when I realized that this is bigger than us. You know, it's um, a small thing to do in comparison to what Christ did for us. And when I put it in that context, it makes it really, you know, quite a privilege to be asked to care for all of our children, but to add another one of these into the equation. So the approval came in December, and in January, we started thinking about how we're going to pay for this. And, you know, we had planned to just save up, and then Get a home, equity, home loan. equity loan made sense. Everybody gets home equity loans. Right. But even with excellent credit, they are not handing out home equity loans like they used to a few years ago. Yeah. So that was in this past January. In May of this year, Valerie started taking Financial Peace University, the Dave Ramsey course at High Point Church. A couple, couple classes into the course, I realized that you know, funding your adoption through credit cards was probably not the best idea. Plan and reserve was to tap into our 401k. Two weeks later, class was on retirement accounts. Guess what? You're not supposed to borrow from yourselves. You're not supposed to touch your retirement accounts. When all of the borrowing options seem to be taken away, then I felt like we were kind of chasing our tail. I think we thought we were in control. Yeah. You know, we had said that we were giving up control of everything, that it was all God's. But somehow when it came to the finances, I think it made us just realize that we were holding on tight, you know, and felt like we could always do it on our own. We did it with the last two adoptions um, with Sydney and Bodie and thought we can do this in our own strength. And um, I think God really used this time to make it really clear that he was going to take the lead. And especially since this was his idea from the beginning. And um, it was a really an eye opener, very humbling to have happen. So one of the leaders at Financial Peace mm -hmm. approached you. She knew our situation and she had contacted Dave Ramsey. And she had mentioned an organization called Both Hands where 
um, an orphan's family teams up with a widow and you bring the two together to do this project for a day. People will be allowed to come alongside us and help support our family as we provide support for a widow. And by having those two come together, like in James 1.27 when it talks about widows and orphans, it's a wonderful opportunity for us to be blessed, for the widow to be blessed, and then for the people that get to help out with the project to be blessed. I think that initially the idea of fundraising kind of freaked me out <laughs> because um, for some people it's kind of hard to ask for help and I think that's kind of where we found ourselves, you know, um, but realizing that that's where the body of believers kind of comes in. But this project is so awesome because um, it's a twofold thing. You know, um, it's kind of like a walkathon or race for the cure type thing where people sponsor you, but it's a workathon. Mm -hmm. And um, we get to bless and encourage somebody else who's going through some pretty tough times as well. And the focus is really on this widow. And you get to bring a bunch of people together who, you know, love the Lord and want to make a difference. And this is such a great opportunity to do that, that it kind of took the burden off. It made us feel like the focus was back where it needed to be, right. and that was back on God. Um, I think that, that Lisa's going to load like the 18-minute version that has the full story this week that you can see off the website. But um, there's, there's a reason why I wanted you to see a little bit of Lincoln's story. And that's because, one, I want you to see that this does not have to do with our budget or something. This has to do with how the beauty of the gospel works out in the lives of people who are fairly normal. And I, I, the other thing I want you to see is because a lot of you— a lot of you know the Lincolns, and for most of you who know them, you would say, nobody more solid than the Lincolns, right? They understand the gospel. They've got the gospel. They get it. They've adopted two children from overseas. You know, Danny's a pilot. He's therefore cool. Like, they're, they're just, you know, I mean, they're just the sort of people that you're like, they just rock. They're, they're, they're the salt of the earth. They're the pillars of the church. They're just, if we could be like them. And then, and then here's what happens. Valerie just said it straight away. I learned something about the gospel. Did you catch that? Because, and what was the problem? The problem was not that she didn't understand the gospel, because over here in her maternal instinct and her love for children and these sorts of things, she understood the gospel very well. But over here, where it came to money, and where it came to letting the body of Christ help you, and where it came to trusting God not just for direction, but also for provision, this area over here, not as much. She said it with her own mouth, didn't she? But she said, and I was, I was scared to do it, didn't know how we were going to do it. But when I thought in terms of, not in terms of how hard is this going to be, but when I thought in terms of how does this relate to me responding to what Christ first has done for us. It was—did you see how she said that? She almost said almost verbatim. When I thought about it this way, I thought, no way, I'm done. But when I took the gospel logic and I thought about it that way, I thought, what a small thing to do to honor my Savior and to love another like he lo first loved us. And if my daughter wants to do it, though she has no idea what it's going to take— then maybe I want to do it.
And here's what else it does. It's going to give us a chance to understand the gospel more deeply. Because they're going to need us, right? Do you know how much an adoption for China costs? It's north of 20K. They've already adopted two that they paid for totally themselves. I mean, for, for them to get Piper here, they need us. They, ca- they can't. And for God to bring along an opportunity of a ministry that unites the needs of a widow with a family that wants to adopt, for that all to happen, for them to need our help, for God to humble them, to give us an opportunity to actually be the church, for all that to happen, it took the gospel going deeper in Danny and Valerie into a place it had never been before, partly through pushing back a finance idol they didn't even know they had. And they are becoming another—I mean, they're going a little closer to— living up to what they've already attained, becoming what Christ Jesus has already declared them to be. And, and that is inviting us to be part of that too. Do you, do you see how that works? And so it's, it's so important for us to know the gospel in, in two main ways. Knowing the gospel as distinguished from what it isn't. And also, knowing the gospel in ever-deepening ways in places where it's never gone. The way um, we've done this so far this year is we've been preaching through the gospel of Mark. And the gospel of Mark is totally focused on Jesus and the gospel. And in every every sermon I've been trying to say, okay, do you see how the gospel works here? Do you see how the gospel works there? And I have seen, and I've talked to some people who have said, basically, okay, I got it somewhere totally new. Um, And that's been great. And we're going to finish up the Gospel of Mark in about five weeks. What we're going to do next is we're going to do something called the Spiritual Growth Focus or a Spiritual Growth Campaign for eight weeks, starting right when we finish the Gospel of Mark in five weeks. We're going to do um, an eight-week series called The Gospel in Life. Um, The Gospel in Life is a, a book put out by Tim Keller and his Church Redeemer Presbyterian. And the whole focus of this study is to get the gospel into everything. Or to understand that the gospel of God's grace changes everything. The way we think about literally every part of our life. Our idols, our work, our friendship and community, how we reach out, how we serve. How um, the nature of our citizenship, the fashion we put on our body— the speech that comes out of our mouth, the way we parent, the way we get into friendships, the way our family life works, how we spend our money, how we invest, how we use our sexuality, how we use power and authority, all of those things. Grace changes everything. And the purpose of that this eight weeks is going to be to drill down deeper and to get this in more places than it's ever been. And and here's here's one of the things I really like about it. Because of the nature of this, I believe— that you could invite a neighbor that has no idea what the gospel's about, and they'll totally get it. Or you can have been a Christian for 65 years, and if you engage with this spiritual growth focus and campaign that we're going to do, the gospel will get into or re-get into a place it's never been before. Um, some of you have been around long enough to have been through one of these sorts of things. Like you were here when, when I think the church had four days of purpose a while back. 
um, or something like that, and, or you've been, you've been to churches or places where somebody, some leader has said, hey, we're going to do this, and you need to get on board, and it's going to be awesome, and, you know, like, just, just trust me on this, and, uh, and then it, it kind of wasn't, or you didn't get on board at all, or whatever. And, um, and I understand that, and that's why we're, our staff and our elders are working really hard to make sure that it's not like that. Um, and part of the reason that our, our leadership wants to do this is because there are a lot of cool things that come out of things like this. The unity that comes in a church that really gives themselves this kind of thing is really remarkable. Um, the intergenerational connection that happens, the involvement, you know, attendance is always, more people come or come more regularly, all that stuff happens. But the, re- the real reason we're, we're going to do this is because what, what I want for myself and for you and for our city and for this world is for us to become real, no kidding Christians. For us to become what, what Christ has already declared us to be. For us to live up to what we've already attained. Um, that is to actually become a community of people that grasp the gospel and believe it and make it believable to the people around us. The fact is, is here's what I know. I know that I have times and that you have times where you, are, you believe in Jesus or you come to church um, and, and this is true of your neighbors too, you feel like you ought to feel found and free of major anxieties and so on. You ought to feel like it's clicking, like something in here, it's working. And you have, there's too much time in your life when it is just not. It is just not clicking. There is anxiety that you're like, this shouldn't even be here. Or you, you feel like your life, it's not in orbit. It's, it's pushing out and pulling on the seams, and you're trying to hold it together. And, and what makes it worse is you're a successful person. And yet, you know that you either feel this way all the time, or times when you just, you just don't feel like you ought to feel that way. Like, I believe in Jesus. Shouldn't I be at peace? Should I feel this kind of anxiety? I know, I know that feeling. And I think that for a lot of us, we're cynical. We just think that's modern life. Modern life just moves real fast. It's going in lots of different directions. We can't possibly keep up. And we're just going to have to feel this way because we've got to compete and we've got to stay ahead. And we've got, this is just, anxious is just part of successful. <clears throat> and um, I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true. I don't think it has to be that way. I don't think you have to feel like you're not sure how long you're going to be able to hold it together or that the peace that the, Bi- the kind of peace that the Bible seems to always talk about, you don't really have very much. But here's the thing. Some of you have just tried to be more passionate. Just be more intense. Let me just, just God, tell me. I'm so sincere. That that's how we try to fix this spiritually. That's not the way to fix this. Here's the problem. 
in the places you feel anxious, the gospel hasn't yet gone. That's the problem. That's the problem for me. You know when I feel anxious? I feel anxious when my success at this church defines me. I feel anxious that fast. You know why? Because Jesus declared righteousness isn't my success. This church is. That fast, I'm anxious. Or my kids aren't perfect. I'm an evangelical Christian. My identity is wrapped up in the perfection of my children. And so my kids don't act right. I get anxious that fast. Because I don't, I'm not a good enough man or parent because Jesus has said enough because of the cross. I'm good enough if and only if all three of my kids become amazing adults. The reason why your life is pulling off in orbit is because it's not unified in the gospel. The reason why that anxiety will not go away is because the gospel doesn't live in those places. It may live in you somewhere. You may believe and be saved, but the gospel hasn't gone there yet. And as long as the gospel doesn't go there, it is not going to enjoy the benefits of the freedom and peace that come from the gospel. And therefore, I believe one of the things we all need to believe and make believable the risen Jesus is for us to see the gospel and grasp it in a way and in places we never have before. And I believe the gospel in life is going to help us do that. And so here's what I want, here's, here's what I want to ask you to do. I want to ask you to not be too cool or too busy to be a full participant in the eight weeks of the gospel in life. That's it. That's what I want to ask you to do. Don't be too cool or too cynical or too busy for these eight weeks. And here's what I mean by full participation. We want to ask you to do four things for these eight weeks. The first is we want to ask you to worship every week for eight weeks. We want you to come to church for eight straight weeks. I know that's kind of mind-blowing for some, um, but one of the things we're also going to do is we're going to have an alternative service for folks that aren't able to make the service, child care workers or families that don't get out of the house in time in the mez. So there are going to be two services so that if you have a family explosion, you might still be able to make the second one. The second thing we're going to do is we're going to ask you to actually get the book, Gospel and Life, and actually read it. It's going to be a really important part of the overall process. Um, it's not a particularly light book. But the book is a study guide, so it's really not that many pages altogether. We'll have them here. They'll be five bucks. If you can't afford five bucks, we'll give you one, of course. Um, but they'll, they'll show up in a couple weeks. Get one and start reading it. The third is discuss it in a small group. We want to ask you to be part of an eight-week short-term small group for the eight weeks of Gospel and Life. You're not signing up for a life sentence. We are, we are going to ask you we are going to come after you like week five, six, and seven to say, hey, is this worthwhile? Do you want to do this longer? But that's not what I'm, I'm asking every single person to sign up for. What I'm asking you to do is for those eight weeks to sign up for a short-term small group. We'll have like, have like 40 different ones. There'll be all kinds of ways to sign up. Um, we're still looking for a couple more hosts. If you want to host one, you got to go to one anyway, right? So why not have a house? You don't have to go anywhere. Get a babysitter. Um, but be in one of those eight-week small groups. And lastly, there'll be a one-day service day in Madison on October 22nd. The Badgers aren't at home playing at noon, I promise. We looked into that. So put on your calendar right now, October 22nd. We'll have 2025 work projects in the city helping people who are not us or like us. And we'll go out and we will serve the city for a day. 
And I want to encourage you to be at that too, October 22nd. I want to ask you to do those four things. And I really believe that if you fully participate, if you get in on these four things, if, if you look to God and ask him to show you where the gospel hasn't yet penetrated, where you haven't grasped it, and you really recognize this is the, the issue, and if we press into this for two months, I think that you're going to see an enormous amount of change in this church and in you and in me. Are you beyond excited? <laughs> Let's pray. <laughs> Sorry, that was embarrassing for me. Um, okay, let's pray. Father, um, <clears throat> we want to be a people that believe the gospel. You said that it's the gospel that's the power of salvation for everybody who believes. And we want to be people who it's so in us that something very beautiful and compelling comes out of our lives, that we experience the joy and encouragement and peace that comes from really knowing and trusting in you and obeying everything you've commanded to the very end of the age. And we want to make the gospel believable to our neighbors. It just kills us that those that you died for, some slander and hate you, and many just don't even think you matter. And we want to see that change in our city and in our world. And so, Father, would you help us um, I pray, Father, that you'd move the hearts of people that are real cynical about this, um, maybe rightfully. Um, but, Father, will you move us together as a community, as a church, in a direction where we can become the kind of people who believe and who are becoming the kind of church Madison needs us to be. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you guys stand for the benediction? <clears throat>